You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I'm grateful for each of you tuning in today, and support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. The Jackson Hole Historical Society and Museum, connecting people to local history by sharing artifacts and ideas to foster curiosity and continual learning, forge connections, and inform our 21st century dialogue. Learn more at jacksonholehistory.org. Everybody, I really enjoy learning through reading. And I write down quotes from people when I'm reading their books. And today's quote is, It is because mankind are disposed to sympathize more entirely with our joy than with our sorrow, that we make parade of our riches and conceal our poverty. Nothing is so mortifying as to be obliged to expose our distress to the view of the public and to feel that though our situation is open to the eyes of all mankind, no mortal can seize for us the half of what we suffer. That's from Adam Smith. And today on episode number 203, I have the pleasure to have a conversation with Scott Kosiba, the executive director of Friends of the Bridger Teton, which is a stewardship-based nonprofit organization right here in the Teton area. As our population has a greater interest in recreating on our national lands, the needs change as do the impacts made to the national forest change as well, all made through greater use. The Bridger Teton National Forest covers an enormous amount of land, in which is about three counties right here in Wyoming, and serves a really wide range of uses. Now, why does a national forest need a fringe group? Well, Scott shares with us today the why and the important impact Friends of the Bridger Teton performs. Our national forests are a remarkable resource that we have in this country. And it's up to us to protect it for future generations, to use it wisely. And with the partnership of the Friends of the Bridger Teton, which is a unique situation for forest services, we can ensure that the forest is in a place for people to use safely and will remain to be used for future generations. Scott, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for taking the time out of your wildly busy summer to join me here today. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on. It's an honor. In, indeed. Now, we start every episode, all of them, with you sharing your connection to this valley, Jackson Hole. And I'd love for you to share with us, where did you grow up? And how did you land out here in this area? And, and where do you live now also? And what are you doing now? So I am a Michigan native, born and raised just south of Kalamazoo. And I went to school in a little liberal, liberal arts school in Michigan as well. Shortly upon graduating from college, I, as a biology major, I took a, a six-month 
volunteer position as a resident naturalist for the University of Georgia in Costa Rica. And as that term was winding down, I was looking for jobs and with a bachelor's degree in biology, you're somewhat limited. So I found a seasonal position in Sublette County, Wyoming, looking at winter range requirements of the greater sage grouse in the natural gas field south of Pinedale. And I had never been to the state of Wyoming before, had no idea what a sage grouse was at the time, <laughs> but was offered the job and moved to Pinedale, Wyoming from Costa Rica in December of 2010. Which was Whoa. Of, yeah, that was an experience, certainly. So I've been a resident of Wyoming since then, honestly, and that's my connection to the area. I've been a Sublette County resident for since December of 2010. And in the intervening years, I've worked for the Jackson Hole Land Trust. I've worked for a number of conservation type organizations in the area. But when I first moved here, I spent a ton of time in Teton County, mountain biking the pass and Cache Creek and dispersed camping in the areas as well. So that's where, that's how I got here. I am currently a resident of Pinedale, Wyoming and do a lot of work in Jackson Hole. And what is it like living in Pinedale, Wyoming? How many people live there and What's it like down there? It's a dream for me. Pinedale is about 2,000, 1,500 to 2,000 people. We are still, I would say, the epitome of a small Western town. So we have our, our cowboy bars and our cowboy stores, and but we also get a lot of tourism. And But it's still, to me, very much has that small town feel. The town that I grew up in, in, in Michigan, is a small rural town. So I appreciate that feeling. We still do not have any uh, true traffic lights, although I think we're moving in that direction, but it's substantially quieter than, uh, than our neighbors to the north, but uh, that may change soon. <laughs> that would be a big change for Pinedale to get a traffic light. Yeah, I always, I always tell people that I know when summer has hit Pinedale when you can't turn left on Pine Street anymore. Hmm. That's usually end of June. Okay. Well, maybe you guys will have a special ceremony for that installation of the <laughs> of the traffic light. There'll be there'll be counter protests and celebrations, I'm sure, uh -huh. on your side of that. That's right. Now you are currently doing what work? So I'm currently the executive director of Friends of the Bridger Tetons. And our organization is we're somewhat young. We've only been around since the end of 2019. But we are a 501c3 nonprofit. And generally speaking, our mission is to be the shoulder to shoulder partner with the entire Bridger Teton National Forest, which is three and a half, roughly 3.4 million acres of national forest in Western Wyoming. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that up. You said three point, how many acres? 3.4 million acres. It's to my understanding, roughly the size of the state of Connecticut. That's a lot of land. It is. And and a lot of people here think that the Bridger Teton is only here in Jackson, but surprise people, it spans several counties. How many counties does the Bridger Teton reside in? So primarily we're in Teton County, 
Sublet County and Lincoln County. Although I do think parts of it, we have a small bit that is also in Fremont County. Mm -hmm. And the Bridger Teton is the, I believe the third largest national forest in the lower, lower 48. And I think the fifth largest total in the entire system. No kidding. Mm -hmm. And do other forests have a friend shoulder or arm like the Bridger Teton does? Yeah. So no, short answer. No, we are one of the few, if only forest wide partners in the national forest system. There are friends group that partner with a specific, with one district. And there are a couple of forest wide nonprofits that have, they don't have the same partnership that we have. They may be more advocacy based, but we are to my knowledge, the only or one of the only forest-wide stewardship-based nonprofits in the country. So we are effectively creating a template and a model that we're hoping to, to export to other forests and grasslands within the system. That, that's interesting. Where did this idea come from? How did it all come about? And, and then also, I guess that answer might even give us the why does it need to exist? Yeah. So, you know, the way that we came about, and, and this is where we have really benefited from being connected into Teton County, Jackson Hole, and the nonprofit philanthropic community that exists in Jackson Hole. I generally tell people that our closest analog is the Grand Teton National Park Foundation. And within the National Park Foundation, or within the National Park System, most or many of the national parks have these types of national park partners. So Grand Teton National Park Foundation, Yellowstone Forever, those have a very similar, I'll say, partnership with where there's a nonprofit entity partnering with a federal agency. The national park system, however, has some specific guidance for compliance and how a friends group can exist and best interface with a partner like this. The Forest Service does not have any model, any type of directive. And so, so we were started, our, our inception was, was we're really the brainchild of a collaboration between the Bridger Teton National Forest and the Grand Teton Association, which is one of the partners of the national park up here. And Grand Teton Association has for years been trying to figure out ways where they can help the forest, recognizing that the national forests here, like most national forests and grasslands in the system, are underfunded and understaffed. And without having a true partner like Grand Teton Association or Grand Teton National Park Foundation, there was no meaningful way for the agency to, to accept any sort of stewardship dollars. And so they have, over the past several years, have been doing retail in the Forest Service offices across the forest. And the proceeds of those are go into a pot of money that the forest is able to use. Recognizing that that wasn't fully addressing the need and that they weren't going to be 100% effective in, in generating the funds necessary to, to really be providing adequate stewardship on a forest this size. They um, worked with the forest to put a, a chunk of money together that was used to hire my predecessor, Sarah Walker, the former executive director. And her task was to 
get our 501c3 status and then start building this organization from the ground up. And what's the impact been since the organization has started in 2019? You know, I'd say it's been just incredible how much work we've been able to do in such a small span of time. And I think that's partially because the need across this forest is so great. The Especially on the recreation side of the forest, we've seen budgets cut and cut over the last several decades where visitation has been increasing. In this area, especially since the total eclipse in 2017, we've seen an explosion of use without a commensurate increase in funding. And so for an organization like us to exist, where we can essentially stand in the breach and work with the Forest Service to identify what are your most critical needs and how can we help address those needs has been really, really effective. And so from being a an educational tool, an outreach tool for the Forest Service where we can project messages that are really important for the public to know, think how to store your food properly in grizzly bear country, how to extinguish your fire, hmm. whether there are fire regulations or not. That has been really effective to infrastructure. And so in Teton County, Last year, we installed two vault toilets at Shadow Mountain and Toppings Lakes dispersed camping areas. And that was that was a fundraiser that was stood up with public dollars, private donations, corporate funds. And we were able to get those in the grounds June 17th last year. And that was a meaningful way to address the explosion of human waste that we're seeing in our mm-hmm. in our camping areas that are just seeing more and more use. So, yeah. What what does it cost to sponsor a, a poop catcher? <laughs> so, general cost for a vault toilet is about $30,000 plus pumping fees and toilet paper, cleaning supplies. You're looking at you know, $30,000 up front and then another $5,000 a year to maintain and clean and all that. And so we have committed to the forest to maintain and clean those to those two toilets. And I should also mention that Friends of Pathways last year also in, installed a toilet at Old Pass Road. And so we work really closely with them to make sure all three toilets are covered and taken care of. But it's a it's a substantial cost. And since we're on the topic, what does that human waste, what's the impact to, you know, the forest when you have all these people coming out camping and instead of going into a toilet, it's just going into the ground. Hopefully they're digging a hole. (laughs) Yeah, that's the best case scenario is they're digging a cat hole and disposing of their waste properly. The challenge that we have, especially in Teton County, but in, in a lot of our dispersed camping areas across the forest is historically the density of use has been low enough that it was perfectly okay for people to dig a cat hole, dispose of their waste, cover it up, assuming they're, they're doing so properly. But when you have hundreds, thousands of people visiting some of these areas, the density of people and therefore the density of waste increases to a point where it becomes it becomes a resource damage issue. It becomes a human and wildlife health issue. Hmm. And 
just generally it, it impacts the experience that our visitors would have in the area. You think mm -hmm. you're showing up to Shadow Mountain to camp in September and 15,000 people have been there before you and have disposed of their human waste in the general area that you're camping properly or improperly. There's, there's a lot of waste in your general vicinity. And so getting that inside of a building has been really helped, especially in those high use areas. And did it just start stinking? It was bad. Yeah. Was it? Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So we have at Toppings Lakes, we're, we're lucky to have a, an ambassador couple, full-time volunteer ambassadors that come out every summer. They have been doing this. They've been living at Toppings Lakes interfacing with volunteers for this is their eighth season doing so. So they actually predate friends of the Berger Teton and hearing their stories of, you know, the pre uh, total eclipse, pre COVID-19 use explosion to what they were seeing before we got those toilets in was, it was a very, very stark difference, but yeah, you get smell. People are disposing of toilet paper. If they're not digging their hole deep enough, then wildlife is digging up the toilet paper and you get what my previous wilderness ranger boss used to call Charmin flowers all over the area. <laughs> it's not pleasant. Not pleasant. No, no, it's not. Well, let's get off poop and we're going to go to, into another topic because it, it's not everybody's familiar with what the difference between dispersed camping is and there's another term for an official campground what's what's the official term official campground or designated campground designated camp. so we have dispersed and then designated but then even with dispersed camping it has to be managed as well so share with us the difference and then how you all are why it needs to be managed dispersed that's a great question and there's actually a third flavor of camping now that we have on the Bridger Teton. So in your designated campground, those are designated as administrative sites on the forest. And so they have specific sites where you can camp. There is a fee associated with using that area. So you go in, there's a fee tube, you pull a little sticker and stick it on the, the post that says that you've paid your fee. In some areas, there's an online reservation system. And in Teton County, those designated campgrounds are managed by a third party entity. And so it, we have all of our designated campgrounds in Teton County. And this isn't true for our other campgrounds across the forest in Sublet and Lincoln, but this third-party contractor is in charge of staffing that with a campground host, making sure those people have the appropriate information, and then they are that single point of contact for the Forest Service. In dispersed camping, I'll say historically, dispersed camping is that you can camp wherever you want. You go down a two-track, you go down a dirt road, and if there's a bare patch of road that you can pitch a tent or you can pull your car into, you're welcome to stay there and you can stay there up until the stay limit, which is in most dispersed camping areas is 14 days. In Teton County, we have a third flavor of dispersed camp or of camping experience. And that is 
what we've, we used to call our designated dispersed camping areas. And that's a little confusing and I cannot remember the term that we're moving towards, but essentially it is still dispersed camping because it's dispersed camping. There is no fee associated because it's dispersed camping. It is not an administrative site for the forest service and there is no person there. There is no campground host. There is no fee tube and there are less amenities, so to speak. However, in these designated areas, and the reason that the forest moved to this, especially in Teton County, is because we're seeing so many people come camping anywhere and everywhere that we were just, some of our areas were turning into bare patches of dirt that looked more like a parking lot than a place where you'd want to go camping. And so we've moved to this model where we have designated areas where you can camp. There is a sign similar to what you see at a campground but you don't technically have to pay a fee. And what we've done on the back end is because there's not a campground host, we've identified areas that are seeing a ton of use and we've put in volunteer ambassadors on our own dollar in the past have been on our own dollar to man and patrol those areas. So Shadow Mountain, Curtis Canyon, Toppings Lakes, Mosquito Creek, those areas are, are good examples. So going back designated, you. I get the part about the administrative site. There's somebody there. You pay a fee. Dispersed, do you pay a fee? You do not. There's no fee. If you go up Mosquito Creek and camp there, if you Fall Creek Road, find a spot, there's no fee associated with camping on the National Forest. And since the rise of visitation, you guys have seen just a plethora of different situations happening. And let's talk about first fires if we can because that can be a game changer for not just the person who was there but a whole community absolutely yeah i what i've learned in this role is that the national forest here is often we often see the symptoms of larger problems that were, or larger challenges that we're facing either within the community of Jackson Hole or elsewhere on the forest or, or globally. And I think fire is a really good embodiment of, of a challenge that, that is, that falls into that camp. And so what we're seeing globally is rising temperatures. What we're seeing across the United States, especially in the forest service system is a legacy of a hundred years of active forest fire suppression, and therefore a substantial buildup of fuels in those areas. And with those two issues, now we have an explosion of use on our national forest, especially concentrated in the Teton County area. And many of those new users are new to recreation period. And they, while it's wonderful that we have a lot of new people that are, are taking advantage of our public lands and are getting to have that experience of going into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and, and, and having that wonderful public lands experience that, you know, those of us who live in this area appreciate, and it's probably a big reason we live here, those people often don't know what they don't know. And so they're more prone to having a campfire 
and not knowing the steps that they need to take to put that fire completely out, to drown that fire, to make it a soup and for it to be completely cold before they're, but before they leave it be. And so these three issues of climate change, fuel buildup, and the potential for a human caused wildfire are substantial. And those are the things, those three things keep me up at night on mm. a regular basis, especially now that we're entering into the, the prime wildfire season here in the area. Oh, yes, we are. Yes, yes we are. And so in an area like Jackson Hole, where the national forest butts right up to our communities, the, the potential for catastrophic impacts to our community, be it loss of human life, loss of property, loss of our natural resources, of which our economy is heavily dependent on. Mm -hmm. The best intervention that we have is not fighting a fire once it starts, but it's being is being preventative, and that's educating the public, that is installing infrastructure like steel campfire rings, and that is working with the community to, to develop plans, working with our, our partner fire agencies, working really closely with the national parks. That is and will continue to be a growing challenge that we're going to face in Jackson Hole and across the Bridger Teton and really across the national forest system. Mm -hmm. Scott, I appreciate this information and we're going to come back and talk more about some fires. And then I also want to touch on bears and other animal wildlife, you know, other wildlife interfacing. So we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle and join today. The Jackson Hole Historical Society and Museum, where we envision a community brought together, enriched, and strengthened by connections to the history and legacy of Jackson Hole. Currently featuring a special exhibit pioneer photographer, William Henry Jackson, presented with the National Park Service. Visit us at 225 North Cash Street in Jackson to see reproductions of some of the first photos of Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons taken 150 years ago. Learn more online at jacksonholehistory.org. Scott, welcome back. We are talking about what the Friends of the Bridger Teton does and how it impacts and helps. You just spoke about campfires and with some changes in climate and environment, how it can be a major impact to a community. I can say from experience, I've been around where there was a forest fire and even just living here, if there's one here in town or even a hundred miles away, 
the quality of the air quality just changes immediately. But you mentioned some some key things. One is know to put that campfire out to where you're making a soup and you can touch it. It's cold. Mm -hmm. So important. Now, I am curious to know between Memorial Day this year and say the last time that you received a report, what's the total number of campfires that have been found that were not cold to the touch? So. I will give you last year's total number, and then I will give you the where we're at to date. And so the way that we collect that those data are how many escaped or abandoned campfires have we seen? So many of these are fires that are not even, you know, they're, they're, some of them are still burning. They're still full-fledged campfires. Some of them, there may be still embers, and some of them may be hopefully somewhat doused and moving towards cool little touch. But last year, last summer in Shadow Mountain, Toppings and Curtis Canyon alone, we found over 200 escaped or abandoned campfires and were able to extinguish those. Anyone of could have been a catastrophic, he would cause wildfire. So that was Shadow, Toppings and where else? In Curtis Canyon. In Curtis, okay. In those same three areas this year, we, I was just looking at the data this afternoon, and it looks like we're up to about 75 in those three areas to date. That's scary. It, is one, scary. it only takes one. It does. And you think about the topography of that area, mm -hmm. uh, it would be very challenging to control a fire once it gets out of hand. And yeah, the potential for loss of life structures, it's, it's enormous. And and we've spoken a lot about Jackson, but the Bridger Teton encompasses those three main counties, Teton, Lincoln, Sublet. Are the problems any different in the other counties or is it a smaller scale because just a fewer number of people, but equally as critical? I'd say the problems are very similar. I'd say the way that we are able to address them and the tools that are at hand are either different or more limited. Hmm. And I say that because in Teton County, we're really lucky to have a community foundation. We're really lucky to have an old bills. We're really lucky to have an engaged and interested community that cares about the natural resource. And many of those residents also have the financial capacity to help with the actual stewardship piece. like funding two vault toilets or three vault toilets for that matter to help deal with human waste. In Sublet County and Lincoln County, we are absolutely seeing an explosion of growth in those areas. The use might be different. So for example, the Grays River Road outside of Alpine on the Grays River District, that's the busiest road that we have on the National Forest. It gets a ton of snowmobile use in the winter, it gets a ton of motorized juice in the summer, side-by-sides, ATVs, and it's a prime spot for fishing and dispersed camping. And it's a great, it's a great spot to spend time. In Sublet County, we are seeing a huge explosion of use and it's primarily focused in the Jim Bridger wilderness. And so we have a lot of challenges that we're facing with our front record 
backcountry recreation in Sublette County, but also trying to figure out how we can manage use and overuse in some of the iconic areas that we have in the Jim Bridger wilderness. So we can thank social media for the overpromotion of some of these areas. And this is true really across the forest, Circuit of the Towers, Titcomb Basin. These areas are drawing people in droves and the Forest Service districts here are absolutely on their heels and they can't hire enough people either because of budget in recent years, it's because of housing shortages, either because of COVID or just the pure shortage of housing. And so the issues that we're facing are, I would say they're forest wide. They're, I would say, being more acutely felt in Teton County, but we're trying to address these challenges basically from Kemmer all the way up to the Yellowstone boundary. Mm. Thank you for for sharing that. There, there's some of those places I've never been to that you just mentioned, and I've heard they are absolutely magnificent. And yeah, social media has its drawbacks. And, and so when people are out recreating, they take pictures. What do you recommend they do with those pictures to help preserve the area? We are really encouraging people to not place name when they're out in the backcountry or anywhere really on the forest. And so if you're on Instagram, if you're on Facebook and you and you go to this just magnificent place on the Bridger Teton National Forest, maybe instead of tagging that specific area, that specific waterfall or mountain peak, to tag the the Bridger Teton National Forest or to tag the specific district that you were on. We make a concerted effort internally in Friends of the Bridger Teton to make sure that when we're highlighting a district or we're highlighting a specific part of the forest that we are trying to really convey the spirit of that area without calling out specific areas. So somewhat of a, if you know, you know, type situation. But I will say that it, it is still a challenge because there's a little bit of a, the, the, the flip side of that is there's this the sense of gatekeeping where if there is a beautiful place and you're not willing to tell people where that beautiful place is, you're gatekeeping. And that has a an outsized impact on maybe folks that would be less inclined or less able to visit those areas otherwise. So it, it's a little bit of a challenge and it's definitely a, a balancing act that we have to find. But I would say in general, if you're going into the winds, if you're going to the Teton wilderness, if you're dispersed camping some glorious place on the Bridger Teton, just tag the Bridger Teton National Forest or tag Wyoming or tag Des Moines, Iowa for all I care. But <laughs> being very specific, um, you know, really tying people into one area, it really just results in use, overuse, and abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we all want to share our experiences, but we also have to be mindful that doing so could, those natural areas are not designed to have great volumes of people there. That's why they're so beautiful to begin with. Yeah. And you have to, I think it's something that's really important to consider when you do make a trip, whether it's camping or fishing or anything else. We want we want these areas to be in good shape for generations to come, for our children, for our grandchildren, for hopefully 
many generations after that. And it really, it takes, it takes every single person. And, you know, they're a good example that, that I think about in just the, the time that I've been in the area, there was a, there's a trail near Pinedale that when I moved here was a secret local spot. It's not a system trail. It's not an area that if you were driving through, you would know to go to. But if you were a local, everybody knew the name of it. Now with the advent of Instagram, that area is people will come into the visitor center and that's the first place they ask to go Mm -hmm. to. And the Forest Service, because it's not a system trail, they have very limited ability to manage that, that trail that's been cut out by users with chainsaws, people bringing chainsaws into the wilderness. It's, it's a challenge. And, and, you know, there's plenty of examples of that across the forest. And I mean, the dispersed camping areas in Teton County, I think are great examples of that. Cache Creek gets a ton of use because everybody sees pictures of it online and then wants to come out here and so it's a it's it's a really delicate balance because it's it's, these are public lands and they are available and accessible to everyone and so you do want to be inclusive and make sure that people have those opportunities but how can you find that balance without pointing the the beam of social media towards a certain area and just getting it blown up where you know there's two areas on the in the Jim Bridger that get 90% of the use and you go anywhere else in the Jim Bridger and there's just gorgeous everywhere you go. And you can find hundreds of lakes where there won't be a single person, but you go to one of these two places and you'll be camping with 200 of your best friends in August. Wow. So let's jump into the conversation about bears. Is it a problem with people and their interaction with bears? I mean, what's... You see the signs, we're going out hanging signs this this weekend saying bear beware, bear be knowledgeable about bears and your food and what's happening there? What's happening? Why is it important to to know how to handle your food? Yeah, that's such a an important piece and that's such a big part of what we're doing on the forest is because we are, we share a border with Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone. A lot of the people who are coming to visit those areas, as we all know, tend to think of those parks as, I don't know, the, the, the Western version of Disney World. And mm. then we all see every year there's three or four people that get gored by a bison or we have certainly our fair share of human wildlife conflicts, be them bears, be them bison or anything else. and. The biggest thing that we uh, that we can do to keep our our wildlife population safe is to minimize the interference that they experience from humans. So, specifically with bears, that means to keep the bears that we have in the system from becoming habituated to human food. Once a bear becomes habituated, associates humans with a with a source of food, that's when we start having conflict. And that conflict is not only a danger to humans, first and foremost, but it's also a danger to that animal. And the common saying is a fed bear is a dead bear. And we do have 
bear conflicts in other parts of the forest with livestock. The difference with livestock is if you have a bear in the upper green, for example, that is, is getting into the cattle and killing livestock, you can move those bears into an area where there are not livestock and you don't have that problem. It is very, very challenging, if not impossible, to move a food habituated bear to another part of the forest or elsewhere in the system and not have that bear move to find humans. And there have been plenty examples of that. Most recently, unfortunately, one of our celebrity bear, our most famous bear, 399, two of her cubs went to the upper green. Both of those bears, at least one of them, was food habituated and was recently euthanized by the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. Mm -hmm. So for us, our best chance at, at, at keeping our, our wildlife population safe is to educate the public in advance. And that does start with storing your food properly hanging your food, storing it in a hard-sided container, storing, storing it in your vehicle, anything with a smell. If you are not attending that food or that item, you are not standing in that immediate vicinity, it needs to be stored. Yeah. So I want you to clarify something, though, because you said it in a hard-sided container. So your standard Coleman style of cooler, you might keep it in there, but you can't leave it out your, of your car when you're not using it. It needs to be in your car or the bear box because a bear will get into that. That's a very good point. Yeah. So a lot of people, a lot of the food storage violations that we encounter are people who have, say, a Yeti cooler is, I guess, in theory, is a bear proof container. The problem is, is bears are very intelligent and they will work at something if they can smell food there, they will work at it to get it open. And so your standard Coleman container, that sucker will be toast if a bear <laughs> is motivated enough. A Yeti cooler, those things are, from what I understand, those are bear proof. However, those rubber straps that you use to secure the cooler, those are not bear proof. And so a lot of our volunteers, most of our volunteers that are in dispersed camping areas, we equip them with lag bolts and wing nuts and they will go through and if a, if there is a yeti cooler that's out they will drop in a lag bolt in the hole and throw the throw a wing nut on there and then leave a little card saying that we secured your food and this is why but in general i would say best practice is to lock it up in your car or yeah. a bear box there's one available thank you for clarifying and and i I appreciate the efforts that the friends are making and the Bridger Teton staff are making with the thinking, well, let's help people be wise and safe. So we'll have that. And there's a cost to it to, to have those lag bolts and wing nuts available, but it's, it's better to help somebody be successful than to come down and bring the the wrath of the law on them or, or something of that nature. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think two important points there are the cost of prevention is far less than the cost of mitigating something, an issue that's out of control, hmm. be it a human caused wildfire or be it the loss of life of a bear or a bison because they were habituated to humans. Uh, so that's really, really important. And the other piece is 
Friends of the Bridger Teton, we are a nonprofit. We don't make any management decisions on the national forest. That is not our role whatsoever. What we do do is we support the forest in any way that we can. And our volunteers, they are volunteers. And our MO, so to speak, is to, if we can lead with the educational piece, if we can lead with the carrot, then there is no need for, for the stick to come. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen, I, I, I would say that we've been really effective in that mission. And in some of the areas, I think Curtis Canyon's a good example. That area historically has been a problem area for not only Forest Service law enforcement, but local law enforcement in Teton County. It's a party spot. There's been drug issues up there. There's been residing on the forest. Those areas with the presence of a full-time, with full-time volunteers who are educational in their capacity only, they have dramatically reduced the, the amount of times that emergency services, law enforcement is, is called in these areas. That's, that's beautiful to hear. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Now, Scott, we need to wrap things up a little bit, you know, cutting into a, a little bit of time and your information has been so informative and and so helpful and i hope that other forest districts are able to have an organization such as the friends of the bridger teton as well and how can people if they want to learn more about the friends of the bridger teton what are ways people can learn more I think the easiest way is to just follow us on our social media, sign up for our newsletter, or get onto our website, which is btfriends.org, Bridger Teton Friends. And we are putting out a lot of information that when it comes to recreating responsibly on public lands, that information is broadly applicable. So other forests, other grasslands are welcome to use the information that we're producing. And I will say too, we have an eye for being able to package what we've, what we're doing, what we intend to do and export that to other forests and other districts in the national forest system in the near future. That's superb. I love it. Well, Scott, I'm gonna let you get back to your day because it sounds like you have plenty to manage and take care of and Thank you for the great work that you're doing and finding all those amazing volunteers. Yes, folks, remember, they are volunteers. They're just passing on the information. Be kind, be thoughtful, and life will still be good. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and I appreciate you having me on. You're welcome, Scott. Be good. Have a good day. Will do. Likewise. To learn more about Scott and Friends of the Bridger Teton, visit the Jackson Hole Connection.com, episode number 203. Everybody, get out there and share this podcast with your friends and family and whoever else you might know in the texting and sharing world of social media. Thank you, everybody who helps keep this podcast going each week. The support I get from my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. We love playing with my sound equipment while here in the office. And of course, to Michael Morey, who's been with me since day one, who does the editing, marketing, scheduling. He's the everything guy for this podcast. Thank you, Michael. Take care, everybody. And I look forward to seeing you right here again for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.